This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 17th. Today, the white women rethinking their support for Trump. How Bill Barr views the country. And a sneak peek at a new Post podcast. I didn't really know much about Donald Trump. I think I watched the first Apprentice, and that was about it. I am officially running for president of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. I kind of thought it was a publicity stunt, more or less, like, oh, I'm going to run for president. And, you know, then it kind of stuck. My name is Jennifer Applegate. I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm a social worker and also a yoga instructor. White women are a very large group of voters in the country. My name is Jenna Johnson, and I'm a national political reporter at The Washington Post. And in 2016, it seems that they went for Trump slightly more than for Hillary Clinton. So I didn't vote for Hillary because I was never a huge fan of hers. And I started to believe the things coming out about her. I definitely remember hearing about Benghazi. That was such a horrible thing to see happen. If you look at white women with bachelor's degrees, that's a group that Hillary Clinton won. If you look at white women who do not have bachelor's degrees, that is a group that Donald Trump won. But I did end up voting for him because there wasn't much negativity surrounding him at that point. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. I just kept hearing negativity about Hillary and the stories about her and all the different things that were coming out about her. And it's been interesting because ever since 2018, and as we've been looking at polling ahead of this next election, it seems like a lot of these women are moving closer to Joe Biden. Let's put it this way. I cannot help but quite literally put up my middle finger at Trump signs, at him coming on the news, at seeing his ridiculous ads about Joe Biden's America definitely voting for Joe Biden. It seemed like there was a big opportunity here for Biden and a big challenge here for Donald Trump. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about what actually happened in 2016, because at least from my recollection, that was one of the big narratives that came out of that election was that white women supported Trump. And that was what kind of put him over the edge. That's what ensured that that Hillary Clinton would lose and that white women were in some ways held responsible for their support of, of President Trump. What was it about him that they thought was worth voting for? 
You know, a lot of the women I spoke with who voted for Trump in 2016 told me that they just liked that he was different. There's one woman who had watched him on The Apprentice and liked that he was a businessman. Everything that she had heard about him seemed to be positive and that he was someone who would be a political outsider and bring a different sort of mindset into the office. I knew his history with the casinos. My parents used to take us there for vacations to Atlantic City. So I definitely knew the names and knew he owned casinos back in the day. Other women said they weren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, there were things that they didn't like about Trump, but they decided to, to give him a chance. Many of these women said that they wish they knew more about him then. But according to the media that they were consuming, according to what they were reading on Facebook, they were painted an image of Trump that they liked and, and that they wanted to take a chance on. So then what has changed for many of these women and why do they think differently about that decision now? Well, the thing that has changed is that President Trump has been in office for three and a half years. They have an actual record that they can look at. They can look at what he has done and decide if they like that or not. Everything he was supposed to do with the, the small plan he did have in 2016, which was basically just to undo everything Obama did, he hasn't done anything. And in many cases, they can look at their own lives and see if their own lives have changed or not, and if they hold him responsible for any of those changes in their life. Some of these women also said, you know, they realized pretty early on in Trump's presidency that they didn't like him. We don't have health care. We don't have good relationships with foreign leaders. We don't have anything sustainable. We don't have, he dismantled so many things. That he wasn't quite going about things in the ways that they had hoped he would. But part of me really questions that because it's like, well, wasn't that clear from before 2016? Like, wasn't it clear the way that the president speaks and the ways that he thinks about people? And I feel like all of that was on display before he was elected. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, sometimes people would list something that he had done, like making fun of a New York Times journalist you know, who has a disability. Written by a nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. And I would tell them, you realize that happened before the election. Mm. Uh, but they say for some reason, they just, they hadn't seen it. They didn't know about it. And when you say that that some of them are looking around at their own lives and thinking about ways that their lives have changed and whether that's attributable to President Trump, what are some of the things that they're looking at? Well, the big one is this COVID-19 crisis. This has led to major changes in their own jobs. At least one of them has had a relative who has caught coronavirus. So my mom got COVID-19. She was in the hospital for about three days. Her blood pressure was kind of going crazy. She did pass out twice. The other thing is the protests that are going on in the country right now and the conversations that many people are having about systemic racism, about police brutality. All of these women said that these are things that they're really concerned about. So this change of heart among some white women voters who had previously voted for Trump, what kind of opportunity does that present to the Biden campaign? 
So with all of this, we're talking about a pretty small number of voters. It's not like we're talking about massive, massive shifts here. We're talking about perhaps pretty small shifts. But in some states that were decided by very narrow margins in 2016, even a slight shift could make all of the difference in deciding the election this year. Hmm. Places like Pennsylvania, where in 2016, 6 million people cast ballots and the election came down to Trump winning by 44,000 votes. Michigan, which was decided by less than a percentage point. Wisconsin, which was also close. In all of these places, even small shifts among groups of voters, especially if it's several small shifts among several different types of voters, can really make a big difference. You know, when it comes to what exactly the Biden campaign is doing to make sure that those women are actually taking their feelings and and voting on them, each state has teams of Democratic organizers who've been focused on these voters for many years. But this is made difficult by COVID. You know, you don't have the door-to-door door knocking that happened in previous years. While Biden is doing a little bit of traveling, not as much as he used to. So that's a big question ahead of this election is, are these voters going to be motivated enough to show up and cast a ballot? Jenna Johnson is a national political reporter for The Post. On Wednesday night, the Attorney General, William Barr, was giving a speech to a Constitution Day event hosted by Hillsdale College out here in Arlington. And the theme of his speech was kind of the role of the prosecutor. But the way the speech sort of went was that he almost attacked prosecutors, particularly career prosecutors, saying in his experience, they're sort of headhunters who look for high-profile targets and political leadership is right to rein them in. I'm Matt Zapatosky. I cover the Justice Department for The Post. A good functioning Justice Department is sort of supposed to get information about crimes and investigate crimes, sort of irrespective of who committed them. Barr was making the point that he sees some career prosecutors, particularly overzealous ones, investigate people as opposed to crimes and see particularly high-profile people as a way to advance their career. So they're not just looking to charge wrongdoing. In Barr's view, they're looking to make a name for themselves and bring down particularly people, especially high-profile people. And, and 
was it assumed that he was talking specifically about investigations into associates of President Trump or famous Republicans? He made no specific references to any cases, but certainly one could interpret his comment as being about two particular cases involving allies of President Trump, because in those cases, Barr has kind of intervened to the dismay of career prosecutors. One is the prosecution of Roger Stone. During the lead up to the sentencing of Roger Stone, Bill Barr intervened to overrule career prosecutors' sentencing recommendation. And four career prosecutors in that instance quit the case kind of in protest over Barr's move. The other case where Barr and the Justice Department intervened in a sort of unusual way was Michael Flynn, the president's former national security advisor. Mm -hmm. Flynn had pleaded guilty. Barr and the Justice Department stepped in after the fact to try to dismiss the case. So since there are these cases that we all know about of moments where Barr has intervened in in high profile cases, why was it so surprising to people to hear him talk about this publicly at this lecture? Well, this was sort of a a high-minded speech, one, and two, a very aggressive speech. So Barr is in charge of the nation's prosecutors. He's their boss. And I think the expectation is that your boss kind of has your back. But in this instance, he was almost attacking the career people in his own institution. And that's what was rubbing people such the wrong way. On top of the idea that, like, he seemed to be attacking career people for political actions, you know, headhunting, going after high-profile people, when in fact he has faced criticism for the same kind of thing, intervening for leniency on high-profile friends of the president. And what else did Barr say at the speech that was noteworthy? Well, a lot. He also talked about sort of the politicization of justice. So he talked about how in today's society, it feels like everyone wants to criminalize conduct that their political opponent is taking that they object to. Um, So he said, you know, he watches TV and he sees TV pundits kind of speculating about some archaic crime that a political official could be charged with. And his thought is, this is an issue for the election. Why are we trying to make this about crimes? And that is noteworthy because you could take that and apply it right to President Trump, who repeatedly calls for his political foes to be prosecuted. Barr also made some comments about the shutdown, essentially saying doctors should not be the end-all, be-all deciders of this, saying it was one of the greatest intrusions on American civil liberty, basically in history. And, and there's actually tape of that that Politico posted from, from that speech that when you listen to it, I think it really shocked people. Putting a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, the, it's, the, it's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. Yeah, it, it certainly did. It seemed to be getting a lot of buzz last night. This has been his long-held view, right? He has long talked about how these shutdown measures that we have taken to respond to the pandemic are great violations of civil liberties. But this was a particularly incendiary way of, of driving home the point. 
He also, in in a question and answer session after the speech, he also talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. He said while he couldn't sort of disagree with the premise that Black Lives Matter, he felt that the movement saw Black lives, he used the word props, essentially like Black people killed by police are props. Black Lives Matter considers them props that help advance their broader political agenda. That that was what Bill Barr said about, about that. The fact that Barr said these things publicly in a way that, according to you, is is pretty shocking even to people inside the Department of Justice. Is that abnormal? Have attorneys general in the past taken such controversial stances? Uh, One has, and that's Bill Barr. So this has been his long-held belief. If you go back, he gave like a a long Q&A in 2001 where he said essentially the same things about career prosecutors. This is his worldview, that political leadership is accountable at the Justice Department and career prosecutors are not. Political leaders can be called to account by Congress. They can be fired by the president. Their names are on every filing and they can be judged for them. But career prosecutors have sort of employment protections and other protections that don't allow that level of scrutiny. So it shocked people that he was so forceful about it. But he has said this stuff before. This is his worldview and the worldview, frankly, of some other conservative lawyers, you know, in his orbit. So if this is a belief that Barr has held for a long time, it seems like maybe this is a moment where that belief is starting to actually take hold in permanent or long-term changes at the Department of Justice. I think we'll see about that. Barr is correct in saying that he's the attorney general, he's the boss, and he's not been shy about intervening in cases. We'll see about what precedence that sets in the future. Are we going to have a Justice Department going forward where the attorney general is as activist as Bill Barr is? You know, I think that depends on a lot of factors who wins the election in November and just sort of what happens to the culture of the Justice Department going forward. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. And now one more thing about an upcoming podcast from The Washington Post. For the last year, one of our producers, Rena Flores, has been working with an investigative reporter, Amy Britton, along with another producer and sound designer here at The Post, Bishop Sand. The story started with a sexual assault in D.C. 
but it took Rena and Amy and Bishop on a reporting journey that went way beyond that. It's surprising and moving and honest about the difficulty of reporting on sexual assault and how it actually works when reporters investigate these claims. I've been lucky enough to hear some drafts of the show, and I'm so excited to share the trailer with you here today. Should we walk back to where it started? Okay. So we're in Glover Park, this safe, cute little neighborhood, and uh, this is where it happened. In Washington, D.C., a 27-year-old woman went for an evening jog. She was steps away from her apartment when a stranger attacked her. I just feel his hand, like, over my mouth and his other hand in between my legs. She fought back. And I went to swing at him. She couldn't have known the real fight was just beginning. I'm Amy Britton, and I'm an investigative reporter for The Washington Post. For the past three years, I've been following what happened in the aftermath of a sexual assault. If she had not, you know, come forward the way she did... I probably would be just rolling along like I was before, and it's completely changed my life. An unusual public warning connects two women, and it leads to a devastating allegation about a powerful man in D.C.'s criminal justice system. He said, very quiet, I've been fantasizing about you. He damaged another human being for a lifetime. You don't get to just say, oh, my bad, and everybody move on. That's not how justice works. This story is about what it takes to come forward. The onus, the pressure, the decision. I'm the arbiter somehow. They get crucified, those women. But what perplexes me is why, 40 years later, she's seeking publicity with the Washington Post. And what happens when a secret becomes too much to bear? I understand why survivors of sexual assault don't report the crimes committed against them. And then what it came down to is, this is my daughter. All I did was tell the truth. And I did it to give myself a safe environment to live in. This is not even about you. This is about telling the truth. This is Canary. The Washington Post investigates. It's a seven-part series about two women, separated by decades and united by their refusal to stay silent. The full podcast comes out on October 1st, but you can subscribe now in your podcast app. Just search for Canary from The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation.